You have your Bibles. We are in Exodus this morning. Uh, we're in Easter still. Don't forget. I think it's important to remind ourselves. Uh, at the church that thinks about and talks about uh, the Lenten season or, or whatever season the church calendar is in because we normally have rhythms of life. At the church who thinks about those things and talks about the Lenten season, it's important to remember that we didn't just fast for 40 days and then have one day of Easter, right? That would be a terrible ratio. I, you know, I don't want 40 days of, of fasting just for one day of feasting. Uh, and, and that's not how the church calendar is set up. So we're still in the season of feasting, of celebrating uh, the resurrection, uh, which, you know, I pointed out last week, maybe Exodus, if you know the story of Exodus, doesn't feel very Eastery to you. But I really think it is. I, I really think it's incredibly Eastery, and, and here's why. Uh, because this story, the Exodus, what happens in Exodus becomes the example. It is the, uh, it is the norm that is pointed back to over and over and over again for what God is like, for God revealing himself in a new way. I am not only the God who is powerful, but I am the God who saves. And that's what you see in Easter, right? Like this God who, is, who rises from the dead, right? There's this God-man who dies and is crucified. Like you see him in a whole new way. And how we see him and understand him is incredibly important. How we, because any, any kind of relationship, how you know that person matters. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've said something and, and, and it, and maybe, or maybe, maybe someone said something to you, and 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 your reaction. Maybe I, I've overreacted before, right? Somebody says something to me, and I, and I kind of overreact, and, and they're like, "No, no, that's not what I meant at all." And you're like, "Oh, you're right." And they're like, "What in my character or in our history would make you think that that's what I would mean by that?" And you're like, "You know what? You're right." Like it's how we understand and hear people is based on how we, what we know of them and, and, and our experience of them. So it's incredibly important in our relationships that we know that. I, I've seen one person tell their spouse, I love you, and their spouse turn and smile, I love you too. I've also seen someone say to their spouse, I love you, and receive not kind words back. You know why? History, you know, like there's a lot going on behind the words in a relationship. So it's really important that we know who, God is because, you know, it, 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 it matters. And so today in Exodus, uh, <laughs> it'll be a little unusual today. Uh, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I have to do that to tell the story. To, 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 yeah, we've come to the place where I have to make good on uh, a promise that I made earlier in the series. And, and we're going to deal with a couple difficult things that kind of culminate in this. Because what we're, what we're at now in Exodus we're at the showdown that's been building up. This, these are this is them. It's the plagues, right? It's coming, right? This is the showdown. This is heaven and earth in conflict, right? Um, which, by the way, like these plagues, these these acts of God on Egypt that he brings to, this is my wheelhouse. That's, that's, that's the only way to say it. Like this is, this is my heart's wheelhouse, right? Because if you ask me what I think about God, this, right? This is my go-to. Like he's just up there and, and you know, I, I'm a tiny little Pharaoh and God is going to deal with me. And if I screw up, he's just waiting to send plagues. Like that is like justice. That's my heart's wheelhouse. It is my go-to. It is my starting place. Now I need to be really clear. That's not what scripture says. 
God is just, yes. God does all of these things. He is powerful and mighty, yes. And God is just, but he's also, well, Jesus, right? Who said of himself, come to me, I'm humble and lowly. It calls people to him. I felt for maybe for most of my life without realizing it, it's felt to me perhaps, or maybe you didn't feel, maybe I just kind of assumed this. Maybe it wasn't taught to me. Maybe I just picked it up this way uh, that God almost seems schizophrenic, right? I mean, don't you ever, have you ever thought before that God makes a big deal out of little things and a little deal out of big things? Like, I think that sometimes I'm like, I feel like that's an overreaction, God. And sometimes I'm like, you should be madder about this. And how do we sort through this? But scripture gives us this really good handle, I think. Your starting point matters. Where you begin makes a huge difference. So 1 John, John is writing about this God. And in 1 John 4, 16, he says this very important thing. And this is a starting place. Uh, My starting place is justice, but the Bible's starting place is 1 John. There it is. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. What is God like? God is love. Here's why this matters. If you are like me and just because of how you're wired and your experiences, your starting place is God's justice, then you interpret his love through the lens of justice. Does that make sense? Here's how I am prone to wrongly think about God. God is just, God is right, I am evil, and sin is punishment, and that's it. Oh yeah, also God loves me too, yeah, I know that. But only when I've done all these things. You can start with love though, and you say, you know what, God is love at his core. How do I now interpret his justice? A very different conclusion, yeah? And when we think about it, like if, you're, if, if you've ever been around children or had children or even thought about children, it, it, it makes sense even on a, on a human scale, Right? I mean, me at my best in a rare moment of good, I discipline my son because I love him. My love is my starting place. I mean, it would be awful if the discipline was a thing that I did and said, if you obey me, then I'll love you. That's not, that's not, that, no, it's no good. Or if I said, I love you, just do whatever you want. That wouldn't be good either. But if I disciplined him because I love him and my starting place is a deep love for him, how I go about dealing with him is very, very different. I have to discipline him, but I have to do it with a certain motivation, a certain heart. And I hope and I pray that he knows my heart. So when I do discipline, after he gets over the, I'm never talking to you again thing, you know, he's like, you know what? Every every parent's dream, right? Is that your kid turns 22 and calls you and is like, you were right, you know, thanks for all the things, right? (laughs) You know, you did it, you know, I know, so I see now why, you know, like, it's not going to happen, but like, you hope that it will, right? It's what keeps you going. So anyway, uh, we have to start with this. I'm showing you my hand, how I'm going to deal with this text is that God is love. Yes, he punishes evil. Yes, God is very concerned about justice, but we must start with love. That is who he is. Let scripture correct our idea of who God is, or we're going to be lost and messed up. So what's been going on is God sent this dude named Moses reluctantly, reluctantly. Moses did not want to go. 
to Egypt where God's people are. They've ended up in Egypt uh, and they ended up there for good reasons. God protected them. He brought them there. Uh, and they grew into a people, just a few, uh, and they grew into this huge people. And one day, after many, 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 many generations, uh, there's a huge number of them. There's a new pharaoh, a new king. The old king uh, loved the Israelites because of uh, this guy named uh, Joseph who had done this amazing stuff. So he, he loved them. But this new king looks around and he's like, where did all these Israelites come from? There's too many of them. We can't have this. Uh, if a fight breaks out, they're going to take the side of the other people, uh, whoever, the attacking army. And it's no good. It's over, right? So you know what we'll do? You know what we'll do? I got solutions. Um, that's how I'm the Pharaoh. Uh, we'll, we'll enslave them. We'll make them make bricks and uh, we'll build uh, weird shaped pyramids with them. Like, you know, like weird things with them, right? With tunnels and stuff, maybe. Who knows? Who knows what we'll do with the bricks? But we'll make them build bricks. And so that's what they do. Uh, they make them build bricks. They enslave them and they cry out to God. And God tries to send this dude Moses. Moses kind of tries on his own, sends him away. Anyway, Moses has been away for a long time. He comes back and uh, with great, great trepidation. He doesn't really want to do it. And God brings him back and says, look, I'm, I'm going to handle it. You're going to be the guy that, that does all this. And so this, this I want to start here. Exodus 7 is where we're at this morning. Uh, God has told hey, Pharaoh, you've got to let my people go through Moses. He's like, nah, I'm not going to do it. Hard pass. And this happens in 7. The Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like a God to Pharaoh. Your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel out of this land. But I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I'll lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall uh, say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it before Pharaoh, then it, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before the Pharaoh and his servants. It became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and they, by magicians of Egypt, sorry, the magicians of Egypt, and also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So let's stop right here for a second. So um, Moses goes in Aaron. They finally go, God said, this is it. Go, to, go tell him, here's a sign. I want you to do this sign so he'll know that, you, that I'm from you. And you throw the, 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 uh, your staff down. And then by some, I don't know, sleight of hand or some other force, uh, evil, dark force in the world, uh, they're able to do the same. Uh, but then Aaron's staff uh, swallows up the other uh, serpents. Uh, it's a great scene. Uh, but Moses, I'm sorry, but Aaron, uh, the Pharaoh's heart is hardened, right? He's not going to do anything about it. So now come the plagues. Let's read this part. The first plague, verse 14. Then Moses, uh, then, then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you'll say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, 
with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their camp canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did all that they commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, lifted up the staff, struck the water of the Nile, all the water of the Nile turned into blood. Fish of the Nile died. The Nile stank, and so the Egyptians could not drink from the water of the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart was, remained hardened. He would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So we've been kind of glossing over two major themes in this first section of Exodus. I told you that I'd get back to them. Today's the day. Uh, One of them is Pharaoh's hard heart. Did it make anybody else uncomfortable? Right? Yeah, it's, like, it's a very big thing that makes a bunch of people uncomfortable, uh, that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. So let's talk about it. Uh, first of all, it's interesting, right? Pharaoh is um, he's the king, right? And not just the king um, believed he was descendant of a god, right? God on earth, right? This is Pharaoh's job. And also, let's not forget that Pharaoh according to Genesis, is created in the image of God, created to rule in God's stead over earth, right? Like he's, but he, instead of just ruling and, and instead of being an image of God, he has come to believe that he is a God, that he is in charge, that he is all-powerful, and begun to do things beyond the bounds of what he ought to cause great harm and inflict great pain. So this is, a, this is a difficult section uh, to deal with, um, but, but let's start with this. There's an interesting thing that people talk about. Let's start with this. How did his heart become hard? So we have to jump around a little bit. Uh, it starts actually before when God's sending Moses at the very beginning in verse chapter 4, verse 21. Uh, we read earlier, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put into your power, but I will harden his heart so that he'll not let the people go. And then before the plagues in chapter seven, verse three says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. God says, I'm going to harden his heart. But then look at this. There's 10 plagues. First plague is blood. It's passive. It says Pharaoh's heart became hard. After the second plague, the plague of frogs, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Third plague, gnats come. Uh, Pharaoh hardened, or uh, Pharaoh's heart was hard. The fourth plague, the flies, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The fifth plague, livestock die. Pharaoh's heart was hard. Six boils come, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Seven, hail, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Eight, locusts 
God announces that he's hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then darkness comes and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ten, the death of the firstborn, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Here's my considered answer. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. I would like to point out that we kind of moderns are really the only ones that really have a problem with this, right? Like the narrator wasn't like, ah, people are going to be confused. Like, no, this is how, like, like yeah. Like, I think if you ask anybody before us, right, like us moderns, they'd have been like, you'd be like, well, who makes this? Like, who controls the world? Like, like, oh, the gods and the secret forces control the things and blah, blah, blah. It's like, so do you make choices? Like, of course we make choices. What are you, an idiot? You know? Like, I think it's us moderns that really struggle because we're so simple cause and effect, right? You know? In one of the great mysteries of all of Scripture, somehow God is completely sovereign over everything, and also humans have responsibility and agency. It just is. It's all over Scripture. It's just kind of acknowledged and accepted. I debated whether or not to talk about it this way, but I'm going to anyway, because you know what? The kind of guy I am. I'm just going to go for it. I, I just don't know. I don't know that. I don't know that we moderns are as linear thinkers, such linear thinkers as we believe that we are. Right? Here, here's what I mean. We live in a psychologized age, right? Where we think about like how, how we make decisions. Right, we make decisions based on the, the the our upbringing, right? Like what our parents did to us. One of the uh, the reasons that we're sad and we make bad decisions is because of what our parents did to us, right? Like we know this now. We know that our upbringing had a lot to do with how we behave in the world and the decisions that we make. The things that happen to us affect us. So what do we have to do? We have to rise above. We have to learn to forgive ourselves, and we have to go out in the world and overcome. Do you hear how insane that sounds? All the bad decisions that I've made are my parents' fault, so now I have to go out and decide to make good ones. Hey, how come your parents get all the blame and you get all the glory? And we just kind of hold both those things as kind of like, okay, right? In our minds, like, no, 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 no. I, I, I can make some decisions, but the bad ones I've made are my parents' fault. What? Which is it? Or even we'll say, hey, you know what? We live in a completely deterministic world. It is nothing but chemistry and physics. It is atoms bouncing around in an order that is completely and totally random. So now listen to what I think and say. What do you, like, what? And life has meaning and purpose somehow, even though you're just, a, your thoughts are just billiard balls bouncing around? I, what I'm saying is this. We, but then God comes and says this in the Bible, and we're like, nope, can't accept that. As if we don't live that way all day long, every day. Holding things in tension that just don't make sense. But it does make sense that there's a God whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thinking is higher than our thinking, who can hold both of these things and just promises them they're both true. So, yes, it's hard. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Ultimately, God. Did Pharaoh do something? Yeah, Pharaoh too. Sorry, this is in the Bible. It happens all the time. It happens to Judas. Uh, Judas did this. Why? Uh, it was foreordained that would happen. So did, wait, hold on. Would Judas just put here to betray Jesus? Oh, no, Judas made that decision. Wait, what? It's all through Scripture. God doesn't seem concerned about it. You and I get all bent out of shape about it. 
but it's just how the world works. I'd also like to add this. I don't think that's the primary point of the text. I don't think it's this, hey, let me explain to you God's sovereignty and, and how God's completely in control, but also how you make decisions. That's not the point of the text. I think what the narrator is trying to describe to us in all of these things, and the thing about the Pharaoh's heart, and all of the, th- all of the things that are happening, is that even the worst type of evil in the world is not a true threat to God's purposes. Even all of the evil that Pharaoh had done, enslaving people, murdering people, God can steer even this type of evil toward his plan of saving all of humanity through Abraham's life. I think that's the point of the text. That no matter what kind of evil rises up, that God is in control of it. There's no, there's no force of humanity, no force of evil that can resist God's purposes to bring salvation. This is supposed to be a comfort to us, not a confusion. It's supposed to be a comfort to us. I, I also think there, there might be a warning here. That sometimes God will give us over to the thing that we've asked for. We harden our heart often enough, long enough. Maybe God just gives us the desire of our heart and it turns out poorly. But what a great comfort that not the evil and not the evil intention of the most powerful man in the world is a thing that God even bats an eye at. That is what I think is going on with the hardening of the heart. The narrator is telling us that he God turns things toward his salvific plans. So God sends the plagues, right? God sends the plagues uh, uh, to uh, Egypt uh, so that the Pharaoh will let them go. The, the first one is amazing, right? These, oh, it's, so, it's so well told. It's just, I, I just wish we could just dive into it, uh, uh, but we can't. We don't even need to read all of them. I, you go home and read them. Uh, but there's, we're going to talk about the first nine today, and they're so well constructed. They're beautiful. Uh, for example, the first three, uh, one, two, and three are kind of a group. Four, five, and six are a group, and seven, eight, and nine are a group. Uh, for example, in, in one, I'm doing left to right. Like you, I should probably do it backwards for you guys, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. One, two, and three, the magicians are able to duplicate them. They're kind of tied together. And, and you find other common things in the telling of the story that tie one, two, and three, four, five, and six, and seven, eight, and nine together. But also they're tied across this way. One, four, and seven are tied together. They all happen in the morning. Uh, seven, eight, and nine happen later, or, four, or sorry, two, Four and eight happen later in the day, and then there's no time given for the other ones. They're tied together and organized and just well-crafted. I just want you to know that. For example, the first one is so good. I mean, it's the most appropriate plague. Why? Well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know. I just love it so much. And here's why. I mean, not love it because it's gross. But here's what's interesting about it, right? The source, if you remember from like, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade, I don't know when they teach you this stuff, the, the lifeblood, the source, the goodness, all of the goodness that, that was available and all the power that Pharaoh had comes from the fact that the Nile floods regularly. It's the source of life. And what is the first thing that God does in the plagues? Turns it to death. Not only that, though, not only that, not only is it a direct attack, not just on the life of the Nile, Nile, but it's an attack on the Pharaoh's authority and what keeps him in power. Not only that, it reminds us that earlier in the story, do you remember the first thing that Pharaoh did to try to control the population? He took all the young baby boys and he threw them in the Nile. Oh, this narrator is really good. 
bringing back this horrific memory of what he did, and then God turning the Nile to blood. And they they proceed on through all of these things. The second plague is frogs, the third uh, gnats, and then then flies, and then livestock die, then boils, and hail, and then locusts, and then darkness. And then we have the terrible, terrible tenth plague. And they're not plagues like we we think about them. Um, Actually, the word has to do with kind of like strikes or blows. Right? Because like only, like only the boils would, would be like what we think of as plague, right? But like these, these acts of God, these blows against Egypt. Um, also, right, it kind of follows this natural sequence. Have you noticed that? I think that's not on purpose, right? I mean, if the Nile turned to blood, what would happen? Fish would die and the frogs would leave it, right? And then what would happen? You have, probably have a bunch of flies and gnats come up, right? Because of all the dead fish and stuff, right? And then what would happen? Perhaps a disease takes root and animals start dying, you know, and then that, and then hail comes and all this. Like, like I'm not saying that God didn't do it, but I'm saying you see the progression. Oh, hey, I forgot to tell you this other thing. Uh, so in seven, eight, and nine, what ties in together is so good. So in the seventh, the seventh plague is like the hail and the it's like it says this. It said it's so bad, no one had ever seen anything like this before. And then in the eighth, the eighth, it's so bad, no one's ever seen anything like this before. And in the ninth, nobody can see. I just love that how the narrator is doing things like that, right? To reinforce all that's happening in these plagues, God is striking at the lifeblood of Egypt, the power of Pharaoh and all of these things. God is sending these divine acts on, the, on Egypt because of disobedience. And here's what he says. Sir. He says he's sending the plagues and, and why, right? So these, these acts, these acts are, are of course, obviously to declare his sovereignty and power, right? That's obvious that he, everything is at his disposal to do whatever he wanted. But he's also doing it to save the Israelites, right? I mean, this is a salvation, a rescue mission. He's sending these plagues to save his people, but also to save, if you read closely, to save the Egyptians and others, right? The rest of history, God points back to this moment as how God is and how he saves people from slavery. And then he also says this, this is the second, the second major topic of this section that we have to discuss today. He does all of these things in the story to make his name known. He sends these plagues to make his name known. So people will know who I am and what I am like. He's doing all of this for that reason. So in Exodus 3, way at the very beginning when Moses is called, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. Go tell my people who I am, that I'm Yahweh. And it comes up again, though, in Exodus 5, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh said to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. God says, go tell him my name. And he says, I don't know who that is. I'm not going to let my people go. Why should I respect what he says? And he says, go tell my people who I am. Israel, I'm sorry, Isaiah, I'm sorry, chapter six, he says to Israel, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, 
as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. He wants Israel to know who he is, his people. This is what I'm like. I'm a God who saves and acts this way. But he also wants the Egyptians to know who he is. Chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring about out my people, out from Israel, out from among them. Not only do I want you to know who I am, I want Israel to know who I am. I want Egypt to know who I am. 7.17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with this staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. He wants Pharaoh to know that he's Yahweh. And then in the last plague, 1212, it says this. I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgment. He wants the gods of Egypt to know that he is Yahweh. He is really determined that everybody knows that he is Yahweh. Why? Right? I mean, if you were that way, we wouldn't want to hang out with you. Everybody's going to know who I am. Everybody's going to hear about everything I did. Everybody's going to know what I like. Like, ugh, nobody wants to be around that person. Why is God insistent on everybody knowing who he is? It's not because he's prideful and it's not because he is needy. The reality is God wants us to know who he is. He wants Pharaoh and Egyptians and the Israelites and all of the gods and all of the world to know who he is, not because he needs us to, he needs our praise and needs our affection, but because he loves us too much to leave us to false gods. Here's what I mean. The story of the Bible is, tells this amazing story about what God is like and how everything came to be. And at the very beginning in Genesis, it tells us how everything was made. And it says that the very beginning that God was hovering over the face of the deep and everything was chaos. That's what it says. And then the entire story of creation is God beginning to order the chaos to make life possible, to make life possible. Flourish. It can't live in this chaos of the waters. So God makes land come out and puts things in the sky. And it's this very ordered, beautiful telling of creation. And he's going to make things in God ordering things so life can flourish. He's a God who orders things. And the plagues? The plagues are the unordering of things, aren't they? When there's rebellion against God, what happens? the chaos of the world begins to flood back because God not only created everything, he sustains everything. And so when God is, the plagues are, yes, there's God strikes, but in some way it's God removing, holding the created order together. It is God that brings life. And what happens? He pulls his hand back and and all of the fish in the Nile die. It turns to blood. 
And there's this break in division of sleek sea creatures and, and land creatures and, and frogs come out of the Nile. And then all of these things happen and all of these things that seem to have to do with creation just letting go and chaos returning. It all comes flooding back on Egypt because of Pharaoh's refusal to obey and listen to God. God turns all of Egypt just back over to that kind of chaos. That's what's going on. Our rebellion brings chaos and God removes his holding hand and lets the chaos come. God gives and he sustains and he even takes away. This is why it's so amazing that when Jesus comes, he begins to say things to like the rich young ruler who comes to him and he says, you know, you gotta be born again. And the guy's like, what? Because that's the reasonable response when someone tells you you have to be born again. What? And Jesus is like, yeah, you got to be born again. The life that you have is no good. You need a different life. You need spiritual life. You need to be reawakened in a whole new way. And he's like, what? And Jesus says, yeah, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might have life, life everlasting. Jesus comes to make what God is like and who he is is known so that when we have faith in him, life is created that is ordered. And then he has the the woman at the well too, like the next story, he's sitting there, this woman at the well, and she's like, uh, is this a woman at the well? And he's like, like, give me some water. And she's like, you're not supposed to be talking to me, dude. And he's like, no, no, no. Like if you knew who I was, you knew who I was, you knew my name. You'd ask me for life and I would have given you, if you asked me for water and I'd have given you living water that would have brought life to you. Why? Jesus comes insisting the same thing. You need to know me and you need to believe in me. Why? Because he is the source of life. And when we look to other things as the source of life, it only brings chaos. Our rebellion against God is to allow our lives and our, the lives of those around us to descend into sin, into rebellion, into chaos. When we begin to love the wrong things, when we begin to act like tiny little pharaohs, it begins to fall apart. And God's response is, you need to know me and know who I am and what I'm like. You need to know my heart that pursues you. You need to know that I love you and that I would come for you and that I will rescue you and that I will save you from yourself because all you are capable of bringing into the world, the most powerful man in the, on, on, on earth, the only thing he's able to bring into the world is chaos, chaos, chaos. I'm the God who created you. I'm the God who will give you life. I'm the God who loves you. And whatever I have to do to pursue you and show you that, I will do, even if it means coming and dying on a cross. That's what I'm like. Nothing will stand against him coming for us. And then Jesus has the absolute gall, not to just teach about that, but actually just to go bring that into people's lives. You know, like, right? Like he just, you just see him ordering chaos. Yeah, you know what? Blind people aren't supposed to be blind. They're supposed to be able to see. People who are deaf aren't supposed to be deaf. They're supposed to be able to hear. Parties are supposed to have wine. I'll turn water into wine just like God does every single day. If people are hungry. I'll take, just like God ever does every single day, I'll take a couple fish and a few loaves and the miracle of procreation. God feeds millions. I'll do the exact same right here in front of you so you know that I am the one who is sent. You know that I love you. And then ultimately goes to the cross and dies and then comes back from dead because the ultimate chaos is death. The ultimate result of our sin and rebellion is death. And Jesus says, even that is defeated. You need to know who I am. 
It's why we make so much about Jesus. It's why we make such a big deal about Jesus. What else would we make a big deal about? Anything else that we make a big deal about only leads to chaos, even good things. And God is determined, determined to pursue us to his end to save us, and nothing will stand in his way. That is the power of his love, not even the most powerful man on earth. I think we look at these plagues and we think about them as how horrible, but I, there's another way to think about it, right? I mean, yeah, it's horrible. Nobody's, I mean, of course. But I mean, he's God, right? I mean, there's a little bit of patience here too, right? Here's what I mean. I'm like, he could have been like, let my people go. No. Well, you know what? Now they have tanks, you know? He could have done that. He could have done, they have machine guns now. You ever seen a grenade? Nope. Now you have. He could have done that. You don't know. Like, he could do whatever he want. He's like, you know what? Just lightning bolts. You're done. You know what? You don't have to go all the way to the promised land. You can just have Egypt. He could have done that. And what does he do instead? He brings these plagues that increase intensity. Yes. But what a long-suffering, patient God. Why? Because he wants you to know what he's like. He wants you to know who he is. He wants you to know that he will take even evil and somehow work it to good. And we live in a world full of evil. And we can either... I don't know how to take it and understand all the things that happen other than there must be a God big enough to make good of it. That's how much he loves you. That's the story of Exodus is that God working and pursuing to save his people, to lead them out. Yes, it's he's through patience and long suffering. Yes, it's almost never on our timetable. It's always on a much longer time scale than most of us are comfortable with. But he's always working towards the salvation of his people, making his name great because it is his name that life flows out of. It is his name, it's from him and his name that we have life, that our lives are ordered and that we can live flourishing lives in him by belonging to him through faith in Jesus Christ, by grace and grace alone. Because here's the other part where you're going to find out pretty soon in the next part of the story. Maybe Pharaoh deserved the plagues, right? All right, yeah. But I can say with pretty good confidence, the Israelites don't deserve to be saved. I mean, like in the next part of the story, they are not nice. They're, they're, they're not grateful at all. They're not like, yay, God saved us. We'll worship him forever. They're like, ugh, no lie. We should go back to slavery. This is better there than here. Like they're just not, ugh, it's gross. I, I, that's me. That's me. That's me. I do that all the time. I'll, I'll pray for a thing. God, I'll do a miracle. And I'm like, oh, he did it. And the next day I'm like, ugh, God never does anything for me. Ugh. I'm the worst. And he saves us and he pursues us and he draws himself to us. And what we have to do is remember who he is and what he is like, that he loves us. And that he is so powerful that he will turn even evil towards our good for our eternal glory. This is the God that we worship that is insistent on saving rebels. It's the good news. It's brilliant. Not that you will earn it, not that you deserve it, but because Jesus Christ died in our place and rose again, you can place him preeminent in your life and he will order your loves. Your life becomes chaos when your loves become disordered. When Christ is not first and preeminent above all other things, our loves become disordered. Chaos enters our life, our thinking and our feeling, and we cannot function. Christ deserves all. We must make much of him in his name. Yeah?
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you so much for this story. It's hard. It's hard to wrestle with. But what wisdom comes from wrestling? What goodness we can see in you and what you were doing when we pay careful attention to who you are and what you were like. You are a God that pursues your people. You are a God that not even evil will be able to derail from purposes. That people will use evil and you will take even their evil and turn it to good. What an amazing thing. So in my heart, God, in my thinking, in my feeling, uh, help me to fall more and more in love with you, to be aware of my sin, that I deserve your wrath and judgment, but that even in your judgment, it is a discipline of a loving father to draw me to you, to draw us to you as we face the tragedies and the sorrows and the losses and even the evil of this world, God, may we increase in faith. We have faith. Increase our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.